Today's reading is from Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Lord, my simple prayer this morning is that you would exalt your great and glorious name and that you would exalt the name of your glorious Son. Lord, the words of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 were inspired by the Holy Spirit and the passion of the Holy Spirit is to exalt the Son as high as he can for the glory of your name and the transformation of our souls and the blessing of the nations. And so I pray today now that you would come and do that work among us, Lord. Let this not be an abstract thought or an abstract belief we have, but I pray that you would, in fact, exalt the glory of Jesus very high in our eyes today. Lord, I do not trust in myself to be able to do this. I trust only in you. Any man can speak words. Any woman can speak words. But only God can truly exalt the glory of Jesus in the heart of a person. And so I pray that you would do that for each and every one of us here today. I love you, Father. I thank you for what you'll do. I trust in you, and I give you my thanks and praise. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. Long ago, at many times and in many different ways, a variety of ways, God spoke and spoke and spoke and spoke to the Jewish ancestors through his appointed prophets. But in these last days... God has spoken to us in a once-for-all decisive fashion through His Son. And having spoken to us through His Son, God has nothing more to say. The purpose of the speech of God, as we talked about last week, is to reveal the glory of the being of God. God is not just giving us information through His speech. His speech is revelation. So the point of the speech of God is to reveal the glory of the being of God. Since the fullness of that glory dwells in the Son and God spoke through His Son, there's nothing more to say. Everything that can be revealed about God is revealed in and through the Son. The speech of God through the Son will echo forever through the corridors of time. That speech will speak and speak and speak and speak forever and without end. Amen. But God will not add one single word to what He has spoken through His Son because there's no need. God has nothing more or less to say than what He's spoken through His Son. God has fully revealed Himself in Jesus, so He has nothing more to reveal than Jesus. Since these things are true, beloved since the speech of God through the Son is so powerful and permanent as this, the questions naturally arise in, their, in our minds, at least they do in mine. Who is this Son then? 
And what has God said through him? And what does that speech have to do with our lives? What impact and implication is there of that speech for our lives? And the author begins to answer these questions in verses 2 through 4. It'll take him the rest of the letter, the rest of the sermon to answer, but he he at least starts in verses 2 through 4, and oh, what a start it is. In those verses, he paints such a vivid and powerful picture of Jesus that it's meant not only to grip us, but also to transform the hearts of anyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that's willing to receive. So he's not just trying to inform our minds here, beloved. The author is trying to grip our lives and force our eyes upward to say, look at the glory of Christ. He is amazingly high and exalted, glorious and lifted up. He deserves all of our praise, all of our attention, all of our allegiance, all of our soul, our lives, our all. Jesus is all and he deserves all. That's the aim of these verses. And so with that in mind, the plan for today is to meditate one by one on seven specific claims that the author makes about Jesus. And having done that, all that will be left for us to do is bow down together and give Jesus the honor that is due to his name. And so I pray now that the Lord will give us eyes to see. The first claim you'll see there in verse 2 that the author makes about Jesus is that he was appointed by God the Father to be the heir of all things. This word appointed uh, literally means to put or to place. And it was used in royal circles to talk about the installation of a king or the installation of a high dignitary of some sort. And so the point of this first claim is that God the Father has exalted Jesus the Son to an utterly exclusive and powerful and unique and permanent place to which no one else will ever attain. Jesus alone has become the sole and rightful heir of everything that belongs to God the Father. This word heir means in Greek exactly what it means in English. It's just someone who is appointed to receive an inheritance. But the emphasis here is not quite so much on what the son is receiving as the position that the son is receiving because he's receiving everything. So in other words, because Jesus is inheriting all things from God the Father, he is being exalted to the position of God the Father. And no one else is exalted to a position like that. So let's think through this just for a minute. Usually when someone is given an inheritance, it means that the owner of the estate has died, right? Some of you have inherited things. I inherited a negative wealth from my parents that actually worked out really well. They broke even, and I remember praising God when my dad died. I said, praise God, mom and dad, you did it. You broke even. Good job. So I inherited nothing, but I, they had to die for me to get the news that I inherited nothing, which is okay. Some of you have inherited more than nothing, but someone had to die for that to happen. Think about this. In the case of the son, he has inherited everything that the father has, and yet the father lives, and the father will always live. Oh, what a glorious thing to think about the fact that the living God has bequeathed all things to his living son, and in this way brought his son to the position of the father. If your child owns everything you own, they are essentially in your place, in your position. And so, again, the emphasis here is not as much on what the son has inherited as it is on the fact that the son has inherited a very high place in the kingdom of God and in the heart of God. 
But having said that, let's talk just for a second about what he has inherited. And I would say only this. This is all he gets. Everything in the universe and all the promises of God. That's all. Everything that exists outside of God the Father Himself has become the possession of God the Son. And this includes all of the great and precious promises that God has made to His people throughout the ages that pointed to the Son and are fulfilled in the Son. The Son has inherited everything outside the Father. And so, galaxies and suns and moons and stars and asteroids belong to the Son. This is not theoretical, beloved. These things belong to Jesus. Land and sky and seas and trees belong to the Son. The fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and every human being that walks on the earth belongs to the Son. And all of the great and precious promises that God spoke to His people through Adam and then Noah and then Abraham and then Moses and then David and then all the prophets, all of the promises of God belong to the Son. They're fulfilled in the Son. They come into their rightful place in the Son. Oh, beloved, this is no theoretical claim that's being made in Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the rightful inheritor of everything outside of God the Father, and yet His Father lives, and so essentially Jesus is in the place of God. Think with me about how great Jesus must be in order for this to be true. Think about how high a place He must occupy because this is true. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is highly exalted and He alone deserves all of our praise, our allegiance, our souls, our lives, our all. The second claim that the author makes about the Son is that God created the world through Him. This simple little word word through is like a galaxy, a, a universe of beauty and meaning. The Father created through the Son. And so this means that ultimately the Father is responsible for creation, but He used the Son to actually enact what He did in creation. And so I'll point you to a couple of other places. In John 1.3, the Apostle says this, All things were made through Him, through the Son, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So every single thing in heaven and on earth that has come into being has come into being from the Father through the Son. Everything. Paul said in Colossians 1.16, For by Him, by Jesus, by the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, tangible things, intangible things, concrete things, abstract things, all things that exist were created through Him and for Him. He is the Creator, beloved. And so we get this vision as we ponder this. God the Father is the visionary. He's the architect He's the designer. He's the provider of resources. He is the one who is ultimately responsible for the end product of creation, if you will. But the Son, He's the implementer. He is the builder. He is the one through whom the Father accomplishes all of His will. He is the one through whom all things come into being, including us. 
And so, for example, I just imagine this week, I don't know how it works in heaven and all that stuff, but I just imagine the Father enjoying himself, enjoying his wisdom, enjoying his power, and he dreams up a galaxy and everything that's inside that galaxy. And Dave Fergus, I know you like specs and all that stuff, so he creates this massive spec book for everything that it will take to create a galaxy. And he dreams it all up, and then he sends his son to work, and through the son, the father's will comes into being. The father dreams it, the son does it. Or to bring it a little closer to home, I thought about trees this week. I love trees. One thing I love about trees is the variety of them. So I envision God sitting back and dreaming about all the different things he could do with this one basic simple idea of a tree. And he creates all these varieties of trees, bushes, plants, dreams it all up, prepares all the specks. But the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, actually and personally fashions each and every tree, each and every bush, each and every plant that you and I see. So this means, beloved, literally, that when we look upon creation, we look at the moon at night and the sun in the day and everything else that we see, we are literally beholding the vision of the Father and the handiwork of the Son, literally. When you look upon anything in creation, you are seeing the design of God Almighty and you are looking at the fingerprints of Jesus because he personally created everything that exists, even the one that you look at in the morning when you look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, you are looking at the design of God the Father and the fingerprints of Jesus. Stephen Curtis Chapman has that song, you know, I see the fingerprints of God all over you. It's, it's true. It's true. You were personally handcrafted in your mother's womb by God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I know many of you are hunters. You love hunting. It's that time of year. You've set up your stands. You're, I don't know when all the dates are, so maybe I'm behind the times here. I don't know. Maybe I've missed the dates. But I'm assuming many of you will still trek out into the woods and get up into your stand before the day has dawned, and I want to encourage you when you get up into that stand to see what you are seeing. When you look at the moon, when you look at the sky, when you look at those clouds and the rising sun, when you look at the trees and the falling leaves and all the creatures that crawl upon the ground, and even when God brings you that deer or whatever it is and and allows you to take and eat, when He does that, I want to encourage you to remind yourself that you're looking at the design of the Father and the fingerprints of Jesus. He has done it all. I was praying for you all this morning, hunters that is, and I was praying that as you go out into the woods and are taken by this fact that creation is the design of the Father and the fingerprints of the Son, that you'd be so taken by the Son that you'd forget to hunt. I pray that he would grip your heart more than what you're out there to do. Let nature have its effect on you. Let it reveal God to you. That's what it's designed to do. For others of you, you love working in your yards. You love working in your gardens. Or like my lovely wife, this woman loves to multiply, multiply plants everywhere. She's got this amazing system. She puts the plant into the fish tank the plant somehow helps the fish. The fish fertilizes the plant, and it all works. And in this way, we have plants all over our house. And then, Carmen, you know you're the latest one to know that my wife also loves to give away plants. She tried to give away as many plants to Carmen as she would possibly take the other day. She has a love for gardening and a love for giving and sharing the joy of what God has done by giving life. And I love that about her. 
If you're a gardener, if you're somebody who likes to be in your yard, I want to encourage you as you walk across your grass and you feel the grass beneath your feet, tell yourself, this is the design of the Father and the fingerprints of the Son that I'm walking on. As you look at your trees and plants and as you watch a seed turn into something that produces food that nourishes your body and gives joy to other people, tell yourself this is no accident. I am literally watching the designs of the Father at work and I'm touching the fingerprints of Jesus Christ, the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things were created and I pray in his mighty name that our eyes would be open to this and we would be in awe of him for it. When we consider the first two claims about Jesus together, like, like consider them in relationship to one another, something is revealed here that the author of Hebrews will come back to later that will literally take our breath away and strike awe into our hearts if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And namely, it is this. Jesus Christ has created everything that he has inherited from the Father. The Lord is the creator of everything that he now possesses. So he's not like some normal inheritor who came to be at some point in time and inherits things from outside of himself. No, everything was created through the Son and for the Son. And so I go back to Colossians 1.16 where Paul says, For by him, by the Son... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him. He is the Creator. And all things were created for Him. He is the Heir. Jesus, I'm sure, had this in mind when He spoke about Himself like this in Revelation 22:13. He said, I am the Alpha. I am the Creator. And I am the Omega. I am the heir. I am the inheritor of everything. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. This is why I think Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ because he's the one through whom all the promises were issued and he is the inheritor of all of those promises. He's the fulfiller of all those promises. So yes, All of God's promises come into their fulfillment in Christ. He is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. The Creator and the Inheritor. He comes into the possession of everything that was created through Him by the Father. Beloved, again, this is not a theoretical claim. And I pray that we won't receive this simply as theological stuff or Bible babble as I thought of it this morning. This isn't just Bible babble. This is truth about Jesus. He is the creator of all things. Just think about his being and how great he must be since that is true. And how high a position he must hold since that is true. Jesus Christ is highly exalted and he alone is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, our souls, our lives, our all. The third claim that the author makes about the Son, as though these two were not enough, is that He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ says of Himself, and it is said of Him, that He is the actual radiance of the glory of God. Who else could claim that about themselves? This phrase, the glory of God, is incredibly rich and deep, 
But let me just summarize it quickly by saying that the glory of God is in one sense the sum total of all the excellencies of God. So God is holy, just, right, true, wise, good, faithful, patient, kind, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and so many other things. God is many things, and everything He is, He is to absolute perfection. And when you put all of God's perfections together, we call that the glory of God. There is a sense biblically in which the glory of God means the the bright, shining nature of His being, the beauty and brightness of the being of God. But there is a more profound sense, I think, in which the glory of God refers to all God is and thinks and feels and wills and says and does. The glory of God is the totality of the being of God and Jesus Christ as His Son radiates that glory. Now we need to talk about this word radiance just for a minute. There are two ways that it gets used and it's really important that we use it in the right way. The first way that this word gets used is to mean reflection. So when you think of this side of the word, think of the moon. The moon doesn't produce any light of its own, right? The moon, what does it do? The moon receives light from the sun. It borrows light from the sun, and it just reflects back to the universe what it has borrowed from the sun, right? So it's reflecting. It's borrowing from outside of itself and reflecting. The second way this word gets used is to mean radiance or shining forth. And the picture to have in your mind here now is the sun rather than the moon. The sun looks to nothing outside of itself except for God to produce its own light. The sun borrows light from no one and it gives light to all. And so is Jesus the reflection of the glory of God or is he the radiance of the glory of God? And the clear answer is that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is not like the moon Jesus is not some object outside of God that receives from God and just reflects back to the universe. No, Jesus is one with the Father and He shares in the glory of the Father and He radiates with the very glory of the Father from the inside out. He is like the sun, S-U-N, but He is the sun, S-O-N. He is the one who makes the glory of God visible. He literally, from the inside out, radiates the glory of God. I have known people, in fact, right now, I'm remembering a time when I was at a, at a restaurant years and years ago, and I saw this woman walk in with a couple of people, and she just had a glow about her. I mean, she was like almost literally glowing. And I was a fairly new believer, and I remember thinking to myself, that woman knows Jesus Christ. I just could see it like that. And sure enough, within minutes, I heard them talking and and discussing the Bible and praying, so I knew that she was a believer. She glowed with the glory of God. In a sense, she radiated the glory of God, but she did it in the way that the moon does it. She did it as a reflector. And all of us at times do that, but not Jesus Jesus radiates the glory of God from the inside out. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one of the verses on which we named this church and founded this church. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So how does that happen? How does a heart come to know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? Simple, in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the one who manifests the glory of God to the universe, and if it wasn't for him, no one would see God or know God. The only reason we know God is because the Son has made him known to us. And so we come to know and experience the Father as he reveals himself to us by the Son. So it turns out that just as it is with creation, so also it is with the glory of God. The Father is the ultimate source of glory, and Jesus is the mediating force, the mediating power of that glory that makes it visible to everyone. And again, I just want to to press us to think about this, beloved. This is not a theoretical claim about Christ. Either this is true or the whole Bible is false. I don't think the Bible is false, so I conclude this is true. Jesus Christ is literally the one who makes the glory of God visible. Who else could make a claim like that? Just think about that and think about how high and exalted and powerful he must be in order for that to be true. Indeed, beloved, Jesus Christ is highly exalted and he alone is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, our souls, our lives, our all. He alone. The next claim, the fourth claim that the author makes about the Son is that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. This word uh, for exact imprint in Greek, it's just one word, and it's actually our English word, character. We take the word character exactly from Greek, and, and, it, and it literally means in Greek, exact imprint. And it was used to refer to an engraver's tool or a stamp or something like that where you would imprint one thing with another. And so most often it was used in kingdoms to talk about the stamp of the, the image of a ruler upon the currency of his kingdom. So when we look at a dollar bill or we look at our change or whatever and we see the, the stamp of certain famous people in our con- country's history, that is a character, that is an exact imprint according to this, this Greek word. And I do think that the author of Hebrews is trying to draw upon this idea to say that the flawless imprint of the being of God has been stamped upon the currency of his kingdom, but in this case the currency isn't money, it's the Son. Every single thing that the Father is, all the way down to the depth of His being, has been stamped upon the Son so that the Son perfectly represents the Father in everything that the Father is, in His essence, in His very nature. This is why Jesus has conscious knowledge of this, by the way. And this is why He said to Philip in in John 14, 9, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, are you crazy? Have I been with you so long and you still don't get it? I feel for Philip, I would have been in his shoes. I would have missed the point too. I tend to miss the point a lot. I would have missed the point. But Jesus is saying to him, Philip, here's the point. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. This is why I'm telling you, God has nothing more or less to say than what he's spoken by his Son. God has fully revealed His glory in Jesus and He has nothing more to reveal than Jesus. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father because He is, in every sense of this word, the exact imprint of the essence of God and that's why He's able to radiate the glory of God because He is exactly like His Father. And again, beloved, this is not a theoretical claim. He is absolutely the imprint of the nature of God. Think how great Jesus must be in order for this to be true. 
Think of how high a position he must hold in order for this to be true. We all tend to domesticate Jesus. We tend to bring him down off of his throne and make him into something we can understand, something with which we're comfortable. For those of us who've been in church a long time, we tend to lean on our previous perceptions of Christ and just put him into a little box that we know and understand. But beloved, he's much greater than any of us has ever thought he is. And I want to encourage you, I want to press you to think about these things that the author of Hebrews is laying before us. Don't just leave this word dormant here after church. Go meditate on these things. Think about these things. See how high and exalted the Son is. Jesus Christ is exceedingly highly exalted and He alone is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, our souls, our lives, our all. The fifth claim that the author makes about the Son is that He upholds all things by the word of His power. This word upholds does mean to bear up under something, so it does mean to like carry weight, but more importantly, it means to carry something along like this. So it's not just carry like Atlas from the Greek world. You know, he put the whole world on his shoulders. That's not, that's not the exact picture. The picture is Christ is bearing up under the weight, but he's walking it towards somewhere. He's, he's moving it along toward a purpose. So the idea here is not just that Jesus is bearing the physical weight of creation. For him, being so strong, there's probably no weight to it at all for him. Rather, the idea here really is that he is continually exercising his sovereign power over all things at all times. He is sustaining all things, and he is carrying all things to their appointed end. He is making everything do what it was designed to do by God the Father, and nothing will be able to resist him by the end of all times. He will enact the purposes of God to the fullness of what those purposes are. Jesus is in control of the existence and the purpose of all things, and he exercises that control by nothing more than the speech of his mouth. The speech of his mouth. So we'll come back to that in just a second. For now, I don't do this very often because I don't like to sow the seeds of doubt in people about their translations. But every once in a while, I just have to point something out, and here's one of those places. If you have the ESV, you'll see that this phrase says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe. If you have any other translation, it probably says something like, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Is that right? Has anybody got an exception to that rule? I looked at about 20 translations yesterday, so I think I'm pretty much right about this. The SV, the, the translators had their reasons for translating this universe, and I, I understand their reasons, but I, I don't think they were right here. I wish they would have gone with all the other translations and translated the Greek words literally, all things. That's what's actually in the Greek. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And here's why this matters. This phrase, all things, is drawing upon the previous truth that the Son has become the heir of all things. And remember what I said all things were? Not much. Just everything in creation and all the promises of God. So Jesus is carrying to perfection everything in creation and all the promises of God. 
When we think to ourselves that he is only upholding the universe, it focuses our attention too narrowly on the physical aspects of creation. But the author of Hebrews has something much broader in mind here. Yes, he's upholding the physical aspects of creation and also all of the promises and purposes of God that were given before the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the means through which all the purposes of God are coming into their fullness. That's the point of this claim here. He is upholding, he is carrying all things toward their appointed end. And again, how does he do this? It's kind of a big job, isn't it? I mean, Kimmy's been looking for jobs like crazy, get a lot of job descriptions. That would be quite the job description. Your job, to uphold everything in creation and all the promises of God. So how does he do that? Simply by the word of his power. He speaks and it is. He speaks and it is. Beloved, this is Jesus. This is the one we think we know. He has that kind of power that he can control everything in the universe, even the purposes and promises of God by the speech of his mouth. He speaks and it is. So I get this vision. The the son also has a listening ministry. There are times when the father speaks and the son listens and he hears the father with utter perfection and utter delight. And then the son, based on the speech of the father, speaks and the will of the father comes into being. So you're familiar with this already if you think about it. In John, the gospel of John, Jesus said, I only say what I hear my father saying, right? I only do what I see my father doing. That was not a policy for his life on earth. That is the policy of the Son for as long as He has existed, and He has existed and will exist forever. The Father listens carefully, or the Son listens carefully to the Father, and then based on the will of the Father, the Son speaks, and the will of the Father comes into being. Beloved, this is Jesus. This is the one we think we know. This is the one who spoke the word on October 26, 1986 and saved this wretched soul of mine. I remember when he revealed his glory to me and in some profound way, I do know him. But in other ways, I don't understand the enormity of who he really is. And this heart of mine has made Jesus smaller than he is. And I don't want to do that. I want to let the word of God open my eyes so I see more of the height and depth and width and breadth of the being of Jesus. He speaks and everything comes into being. He speaks and it is carried toward its appointed purpose. This is Jesus. This is God. Think about how high and exalted he must be in order for these things to be true of him. Indeed, beloved, Jesus, in fact, is highly exalted, and he alone is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, our souls, our lives, our all. The sixth claim the author makes about the Son is that he made purification for sins. So, and, and Mike, you pointed this out a couple weeks ago. It almost feels like he just drops it as a by the way, you know? So, which is kind of a big thing to drop as a by the way. So the Son is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the Father created all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the being of God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And oh, by the way, he made purification for sins. You know, in his extra time. 
Anybody who knows the Bible well should feel breathtaking when you just see that phrase. He made purification for sins. The word actually means cleansing. He cleansed us of sins. He cleansed the offense. He cleansed the conscience. He cleansed it away. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Since Adam and Eve sinned, since they fell and the destruction and power of sin came into the human heart and into the human race, this question has been hanging over creation and over the Bible itself. Who will save us from our sins? Who can make a cleansing for sin so powerful that it wipes the conscience clean, gives us peace with God, and restores humanity's fellowship with God? Well, the author of Hebrews answers, Jesus and nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what. That's the answer. Only Christ could take away sins. He will go into a lot more detail later. And by the grace of God, we'll look at those things and hopefully see and understand things about Christ we've never heard before. But for now, I think the thing he wants us just to hear and to feel is the weight of this, that for many thousands of years, the earth was groaning, crying, who will make atonement for sins? Answer, the Son. Answer, Jesus Christ. He is the agent of creation. He is the agent of the glory and the being of God. He is the agent of the purposes of God. And he's also the agent of salvation, just to cover all the bases. He brought all things into being. He reflects the glory of God accurately to everything that is. He upholds all things and brings them toward their appointed purpose. And he himself is the way of salvation. And please note how I said that. Jesus doesn't provide for our salvation outside of himself. He himself is the way. He himself is the truth. He himself is the life. He made atonement for sins with no outside help. And he made atonement for sins by offering the sacrifice of his very self. So Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the offering. Jesus is the atonement between us and God. Jesus is the peace that we have with God. Jesus is the eternal promise that that peace will never be broken. And if we believe in him, we will always have communion with God the Father. Beloved, some of you came from a Catholic background. Have you ever heard of a priest like this? What priest have you ever met that offered a sacrifice and was himself that sacrifice and yet lived? and yet lives to intercede for all of us, and yet lives to protect and prosper the peace that he bought for us with God. What priest in the universe is like Jesus Christ? Beloved, this is Jesus. And you just have to think about the nature of his priesthood, which we will do at great length later this year. And you have to let yourself think he's greater than I've ever thought he was. He's more than I ever imagined he was. He is Jesus Christ, the Almighty. And he alone is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, our souls, our lives, our all. And so with that, the author makes a seventh claim about the Son, namely, that having made purification for sins, he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. I see these words, especially he sat down. I see those words setting up chapter 7, where we're taught that Jesus is both the priest and the king. And this is extremely unusual. Before Christ, no priest ever 
ruled on a throne, and no king ever offered his own sacrifices. These offices were separated by the decree of God, for that was right. You had a priest and you had a king. Never the two shall meet. No king in David's kingdom ever served as a high priest, and no high priest ever sat on the throne of David. It just wasn't right. It wasn't what God willed. It wasn't what God wanted. And so this idea that Jesus sat down on the throne, there's a lot more going on here than it looks like at first sight. The author of Hebrews is declaring him to be, first of all, the high priest, and second of all, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ruler of all rulers. Both things are happening. So let me show you how I see this. On the one hand, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after making purification for sins because he sacrificed himself. There was no more need for sacrifice and he rested. He's done with his work. No more work. This is really stunning. We're going to see this in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. The priests of the Levitical system were always standing because they were always offering and offering and offering and offering sacrifices. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And so the job was never done. For 1,500 years, day after day after day after day after day, the bloods of bulls and goats are offered and offered and offered and offered, and the priests can't sit because their work is not done. That work was not an exercise in futility. God commanded that work. But I think that part of the reason why God allowed 15 centuries of blood to be sacrificed was to show the superior value of of the blood of Jesus Christ. For 1,500 years, they're sacrificing bulls and goats and the sin is not taken away. In one moment, God sends his son and Jesus sheds his blood and sin is taken away. And Jesus sits down. The job is done, beloved. The job is done. He's the high priest and his work is done. That's number one. The second reason, the thing that's behind Jesus sitting at the throne of God, is that after making purification for sins, he took the rightful place of the ruler of everything. He became the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ruler of rulers, the power over all powers. He is the king of kings. Do you know anybody who can make a claim to the throne of God like this, like Jesus did? He is the heir of everything, the creator of everything, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the one who upholds all things and carries them toward their appointed end. He is the one who made perfect purification for sins and given that all these things are true, he rightly belongs on the throne of God. On the throne of God. Recently I was in Washington, D.C., as most of you know, What do you think would have happened to me if I tried to crash the White House and sit on the throne of Barack Obama in the the Oval Office? I don't think that would have gone real well for me, yeah? I was walking around the Capitol building earlier that day and I'm walking by this bush, just minding my own business, having fun, being in Washington, D.C. And I look over and there's a guy with an automatic machine gun in his hand. I was like, whoa, these people are serious. And believe me, if I tried to crash the throne of the United States of America, I would have problems. Beloved, The throne of the USA is nothing compared to the throne of God. The United States, like every other kingdom, will fade away. But the kingdom of our God will endure forever and ever. And Jesus Christ walked straight to the throne and sat down on it. 
Why? Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of rulers. He is the power over all powers. His kingdom will endure forever. His kingdom is subject to no earthly power. His kingdom has power over all earthly powers. Beloved, this is Jesus. This is no theoretical claim. This isn't just Bible babble. This isn't just church talk. This isn't just theology. This is Jesus, beloved. This is Jesus. He really is the high priest who made the sacrifice. He really is the king of kings who right now is seated on the throne of God, ruling everything. These things are true. And since they are true, just think of how high and exalted he is. He is highly exalted. And he alone deserves all of our praise, our allegiance, our time, our energy, our passions, our focus, our souls, our lives, our all. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. I'll say a few things about verse 4. Next week it gets into the subject of angels, and I want to save that for next week. But for now, I just want to point out one more thing, that in highlighting these seven attributes of the being and the work of the Son, the author begins to show that Jesus is, is far superior to everything and everyone except for God the Father himself. In the Greek language, from verses 1 to 4, there are only 72 words. In 72 words, the author has masterfully shown that Jesus Christ is the final prophet that delivered the final speech of God, verses 1 through 2. Jesus Christ is the faithful high priest who made purification for sins, Verses, verse 3. And Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sat down on the throne of God. Really, verses 2 through 4, the whole thing. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the fulfillment of everything. I just can't believe that this author was able to articulate all that in 72 words. Do an exercise today. Give yourself 72 words and go say everything you can think of to say about Jesus. Exalt him as high as you can and see how that goes. As I meditated on these words, I told you a few weeks ago, I called Kim in tears and I just said, Kimmy, God wrote Hebrews. The Holy Spirit had to have thought of this because no human being could so intricately weave a picture of the glory of Jesus as this. And I just want to say once again, this is not a theoretical picture. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. The author's aim is not just to inform our minds with information about Christ. He's trying to get us to encounter Christ. He wants us to come near to Christ, for Christ has drawn near to us. And I pray now that in these final moments of this service that that's exactly what we'll do. Don't hold him at a distance now. Let Jesus come near as I pray and as we sing and as we bow before the King of Kings. Let me pray. Our Father, I give you my thanks and praise for this word from Hebrews. I love you, Father, for inspiring the author to write as he did, and I love you for preserving these words for us for all these years. I love you for shepherding this church to the place where we're ready and able to receive these words with fruitfulness. I thank you for your designs, your purposes that you have for us with these words, and I thank you because I know that you'll uphold them all. You'll carry them all to their appointed purpose. I thank you. And right now in this moment, Jesus, I pray that you would simply stun us by the reality of who you are. Help us, Lord, to stop holding you at a distance. Help us, Lord, to stop putting you into categories and boxes in which you do not belong. Help us, Lord, to receive you as you are 
and to be changed by who you are. Oh, Lord God, how we love you and how we pray that you would draw near to us now, even in these moments as we sing this precious song. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.